Welcome to Honest Money. We have a special three-part series talking with authors Stephen Boyke Sidley and Simon Dingle on their new book, Beyond Bitcoin, Decentralized Finance and the End of Banks. In this episode, Warren Ingram and our guest speakers cover the safety of crypto, transactions, how crypto is valued, what is a stablecoin, and how does this affect the reserve banks. Listen for more. Welcome to another special edition of Honest Money. Uh, we're talking all things decentralized finance. I think we can kind of migrate on from just a pure Bitcoin uh, conversation now. And, and I'm joined by two authors of what I think is a really good book. Uh, and and, and I've, I've written a few, so I've, I've, I think I've got an idea of what a good book looks, now, looks like nowadays. The, the book's called Beyond Bitcoin, Decentralized Finance and the End of Banks. And I'm joined by the, by the two authors, Simon Dingle, Stephen Boyke Sidley. Thanks so much for for, for joining. I uh, really appreciate your time and, and for you sitting in this uh, wonderful studio of ours. Thanks for having Great. us. Yeah, thanks to you. Thanks for having us. So, so we we have um, we have touched on 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 this world in in, in our first episode of the of the special series, and I think uh, for, for me one of the interesting parts about this is, uh, and, and I think we should just get it out the way. Is this really the only the place for bad actors? Is this where, if I think about the early days of e-commerce with the internet, it was pornographers that really blew up uh, the, the ability to use the internet, right, and to do online transactions, and and I think that some of the the, the bad press, and I, I actually would suspect unfair press around. This whole world of of decentralized, maybe not just decentralized finance, but this this world, uh, is that it's it's actually only really the preserve of the terrorists, the gangsters, the drug dealers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Is that a myth we can just dispel? Is are, are there lots of people out there that want to do better? We can absolutely dispel it. In fact, there, there's been a forensic study that's dispelled it. Uh, a, a small, tiny minority, a fraction of all blockchain transactions are. Um, in any way related to crime. In fact, a far lower percentage than you'd find in the traditional banking systems. Um, and the reason for that is that uh, the blockchain is transparent. Um, and I think there's a, there's a misunderstanding out there that, for example, Bitcoin transactions are anonymous. They aren't. They're pseudonymous. Um, but you're talking about... Uh, so, so let's explain that. Yes. Yeah, so, so anonymous, of course, is I don't know who you are. The opposite of that is de-anonymized. I know exactly who you are. Pseudonymous is somewhere in the middle. I know something about you, but not everything. Um, and so in the case of Bitcoin, you've got an open ledger of transactions that anybody can go and take a look at. And every single transaction on the Bitcoin network, since the first one in 2009 when Satoshi Nakamoto sent some Bitcoin to Helfini, you can go and see every transaction since then. And you can see this wallet sent that much Bitcoin to that wallet. What you don't always know is who owns the wallets. But they're organizations. Um, one of the biggest ones is called Elliptical. Um, and there are a few of them now that are doing forensics on the blockchain where they go and they de-anonymize addresses and they draw up these networks of, okay, we know, we know who this was over here. We don't know who that was in the middle, but the money came out with Warren. So let's speak to Warren in the first person and find out, you know, what happened in the middle, etc. Um, and if you're a criminal, the last thing you want is footprints. And the blockchain is just footprints all the way from the first transaction until exactly. today. So for criminals, the blockchain is actually not a great uh, tool. And we've seen so many big busts now of people who thought they'd covered their tracks. Uh, most recently, the Bitfinex hackers um, who stole Bitcoin that's now worth $3.6 billion were arrested. They had used every technology under the sun to try and hide their tracks. They used mixers. Um, we won't get into the technicalities of it, but there are systems that are designed to, to kind of um, make your, your, your transactions really hard to trace. 
The reality is if authorities want to find you badly enough, they will, even on the blockchain. So criminals love the traditional banking system because it's opaque, because bank ledgers are closed. I can't go, uh, you know, as a South African uh, law enforcement officer and get a South American bank to show me their ledger unless I've got, you know, some some very serious legals behind me. Um, criminals love cash. It's fantastic yeah. <laughs> um, as, as a medium. The blockchain is not God's gift to criminals. Yeah, so let me add this up with some real stats um, beyond the ones that you've already heard. Uh, $35 billion has been st- um, the result of Finia Gray, the result of bad actors in the world of blockchain since 2009. So what's that, 13 years? $35 billion. It is estimated that $1 trillion a year is stolen in the traditional financial system. In one single incident in 2021, which was, which was a, a Danish bank and an Estonian bank had, had, had uh, collaborated together to steal $300 billion in a single day. Why is it so easy to do it in the traditional world? You've heard why it's difficult to do it in the blockchain world because it's open and people can see the transactions and people leave trails and they get caught. It is easy to do in the traditional world because people are fallible. You can bribe bank employees. You can threaten bank employees. You can hide things in Panamanian accounts as we saw last year. For a while. The traditional world of finance is just unbelievably low-hanging fruit for a smart criminal. The blockchain world is much more difficult to navigate transparently and anonymously, and you have this police force of thousands of white hackers who are looking to keep the bad guys out. If I could just add to that, sorry, before we go on, Warren, the one thing there is a lot of is scams, right? Yeah. Um, Not that scammers, you know, were handed a gift with the blockchain either. They were around long before then. Um, But... People who run financial scams rely on misunderstanding and, you know, using jargon to confuse people, etc. And the blockchain has given them, you know, a plethora of jargon yeah. to use to confuse. So they take advantage of the fact that people don't understand Bitcoin and, and you know, they use that as a way to steal money. We obviously know about ransomware as well, and I think it would be irresponsible to say that blockchain hasn't been an enabler for random ransomware. It absolutely has been. But again, uh, you know, in the, in the previous episode, you, you mentioned that, you know, you don't want to get into to labeling tools as intrinsically good or evil. You know, you can use a bread knife to make a delicious sandwich or you can stab somebody with it, but it's not the bread knife's fault either way. Yeah. Um, you know, scammers didn't need help before scamming people. Um, they, they've just got a tool now that does something better than all the tools before. So it'll do it better for everyone. You know, cars are faster for criminals and for people trying to get to work. Bitcoin is a better payment network, whether you're a scammer or somebody trying to pay your bills. Um, but, but people do need to be careful because, especially in South Africa, where, you know, one of the <laughs> – we are now famous for, for two of the biggest uh, blockchain-related scams in history with Mirror Trading International and AfriCrypt, unfortunately. Two more things South Africans are famous for. Um, yeah. But, but people do need to be careful out there because that's, that's the real criminal element. So, so uh, I mean, may, maybe to, to, to pivot slightly to, uh, you know, how does money become money? And, and my view is, and, uh, is it becomes money because we believe it's, it's so. We believe it's something we yeah. can we can do, and and you've already touched on uh, in, in a previous ep- episode that, that uh, th- this this can work because it's trustless, uh, and and so we don't need to have faith in it like we would have to have faith in the US dollar. We just need to know that the system works, mm. and it and, and things will happen, uh, n- not because someone says, but because it's there. It's already known. 
what everything we need to know is known already, and, and action has to take place for it to, to unfold. Yeah, to pin this on the wall another way, one of the, one of the most common questions is, well, what's behind, what, what supports it? What's the value underlying this Bitcoin thing, which after all is just sort of a, a number of 50 or 52 digits long? What is it? I don't understand. The comeback answer to that question is, what is the dollar or any other currency for that matter? And all that thing is, is the government saying, I promise to honor this dollar and I promise not to debase it and make it less worth than it was last year. And in fact, governments do not do that. Every single nation state, it turns out, in research for this book, for the past 6,000 years that have gone under, Roman Empire, all the other ones, through history have gone under because the nation state has printed more money or they've salted their gold coins with silver in order to invade the next country or in order to build new castles or whatever. You cannot debase Bitcoin. The very first problem that Bitcoin solved was that it is non-debasable, it is non-inflatable. And so the question when you ask is, what is behind Bitcoin? It's, there's even less behind the dollar. The dollar is simply based on trust in the government. And if you live in Venezuela or Zimbabwe or Weimar Republic or Turkey or Argentina today, that's not such a good strategy. You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So, so let's get to uh, 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 an area in your book that you cover around sta- uh, something called stable coins, and then you, you attach it, let's say, to the, the let's talk about reserve banks. How do they fit into all of this? Do they, don't they? But, but firstly, can we just de-jargon what's a stable coin? What are we talking about here? So a stable coin is a cryptocurrency that's pegged to the price of a real-world asset, like the dollar, for example. So the biggest stable coin at the time of this recording is called Tether, or its ticker is USDT, um, and one Tether token is always worth one dollar. Yeah. Um, my company has a project called Zop, which we'd, where we're doing the same thing with the RAND. So one Zop token is always worth one RAND. Now, there are various ways that you can do that. Um, the Probably the most honest way to do it is you have a bank account of actual RANDs or actual dollars, uh, and you're using that to back the token. So with our Zop project, or every one Zop token in circulation on the blockchain, we've got one RAND in the bank. And anybody who brings us a ZARP token will exchange for one rand one-to-one. And so we peg the price that way. Um, now, there's several reasons why you'd want to do that. Uh, one of them is that because we're talking about a nascent asset class in the form of cryptocurrency in general, um, price volatility is a reality. You know, Bitcoin is worth $60,000 the one day and 38000 the next and forty two, and it's up and it's down. Now, some of us see that as a feature, especially if your time horizon is anything longer than three years. Um, but, you know, that means that it, it limits it for merchants who want to know how much money they're going to have yeah. in the bank at the end of the month. Um, so stable coins give you all of the advantage of cryptocurrency, super fast, borderless, efficient, um, low transaction fees, etc. Decentralized, which is the most important feature. 
um, but without price volatility because I know one token is always going to be worth one dollar or one rand. And it can literally be anything. I mean, it, it's something that if, if, if someone creates a stable coin, the, the stable part of that can be whatever, whatever someone chooses. This isn't uh, something that's prescribed already in 2008 in, in, in a seminal paper. This is, yes. this is what, what someone wants to create. And if they can innovate uh, something that gets faith from, from people, uh, it can work. And, and in fact, one of, the, one of the very first innovations that happened when Vitalik Buterin provided this programming language which allowed smart contracts to be written was the invention of the stablecoin. That was one of the first people, um, his name was Rune Christensen, the stablecoin that he invented was called DAI, D-A-Y, and it completely changed yeah, I... the industry because it allowed trading to happen within the crypto ecosystem, Bitcoin and Ethereum and Dogecoin and all the other things, and come in and out of the stablecoin without ever going back to the world of fiat, where it is slow and ossified and high cost. So it was a program. A smart contract is what defines stablecoin. So, so let's let's talk about the opposite of decentralized, which is we've got reserve banks, and and, and they, like it or not, they currently make the world of money work in one form or another, good or bad. Let's let's put the value judgments to one side for a second. How, how do they interact with this? Because is it, is it are they excluded? You, you, you're saying in your title end of banks, and I, and I know you've explained it's the end of banks as we know it. Is it the end of reserve banks as we know it, or end of reserve banks? I've got, I've got to let Simon answer this question because I saw him answer a question like this uh, previously and he started levitating, so I'd love to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, no pressure. Yeah. Um, central banks are getting involved in the form of uh, what we refer to as central bank digital currencies or CBDCs, uh, where they're imagining issuing their own sort of uh, a fiat currency token, if you will. It's a little bit of a non... Just let, let, let's go to, uh, so fiat currency... Uh, so, so Sorry, so, so, so fiat is a Latin word that means let it be done, basically. Okay. Or because I say so is another way to interpret it. <laughs> um, and, and so old world currencies like the rand and the dollar, etc., we refer to as fiat currency. And They're, it's kind of derogative, uh, derogatory in, in the eyes of the, the crypto world, right? They kind of go, fiat currency is the old, the yesterday. Uh, yeah, I think it depends on how, how extreme the, the member of, of the crypto faithful is that you're speaking to, because... Okay. Because uh, you know, obviously, reality is 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 more um, is more complicated than that, and the truth is always somewhere on a spectrum. <laughs> but, yeah. But um, but yeah. So so fiat money is is sort of rands and dollars and, okay. and central bank money. Um, now, central bank digital currency is kind of taken that taking that to the next level. Um, and some of you, your listeners will be familiar with um, what's happening in China, for example. They're probably um, the most progressive state at the moment in terms of introducing a CBDC with uh, the digital uh, renminbi. Um, the, the issue with a, a digital um, currency, the way that China's imagining it, is that their preoccupation is, is with surveillance and with control. So the central bank will be your prime banker. Um, it kind of cuts out the need for intermediary banks um, because we don't need them anymore. I can just have an account with the state. So yeah. my bank account is with the, the central bank. The central bank issues me my currency. Perhaps there's some form of UBI, universal basic income. So the government gives me an allowance every month. And then, you know, my money that I earn from my job, et cetera, goes into that same account. But now the state can see where I'm spending, what I'm spending on. They can take their tax automatically. And they can decide uh, if I'm a dissident or they don't like my face. Now my bank account's frozen. Maybe I've got too many traffic fines, et cetera. And now I can't function as a citizen anymore because I cannot make payments. My right to transact has been, has been taken away, right? So that's where China's heading. In South Africa, 
obviously the South African Reserve Bank isn't thinking about that level of control. Just yet, yeah. Just yet. Um, You know, they're thinking about social grants. They're thinking about um, minimizing corruption. Good things that you also get when you have an enabling technology like that. But of course, the problem is always what you're enabling when the wrong people take control, you know, yeah. or if the wrong people take control. So it, it depends which central bank you speak to. They're all thinking of these things in different ways. My fundamental problem is that there's a misunderstanding of cryptocurrency here, right? Um, because it's a little bit like saying, we're going to make ice, but we're going to make it with fire. And it's like, well, you, there's something missing in your understanding of ice and fire if you think you can make one with the other. So let me explain what I mean. If you look at the enabling technology of the blockchain, right, and that's all it is. Bitcoin is the headline. Blockchain is just a part of the part of the puzzle. But the reason that the blockchain uses so many resources, it's so resource intensive, is going back to what we we're saying about enabling a trustless network. If you're not going to have a central authority or an intermediary verifying your transactions, you have to replace them with something. And in Bitcoin, we replace them with a hell of a lot of computing resources, right? So all of that computing power is required because there is no intermediary. There's no central authority. The moment you put a central authority into a payment network or or any information network for that matter, you don't need all of that extra compute resource anymore because now I've got a central authority again that's clearing the transactions for me. I don't have a trustless network. I've got a trusted network, right? So in central bank digital currencies that are imagined as using cryptocurrency, now I've got the worst of both worlds. I'm using a hell of a lot of computer resources to enable this technology and I've got a trusted intermediary that's using its own resources and, and, and it's inefficient as well. And I've created this Frankenstein's monster that really has no purpose for existing. It's just a, the most inefficient combination of things in the world. And really, to me, it's a manifestation of how old institutions and especially state institutions just don't understand technology. Because the problem isn't something that's going to be solved with blockchain. It's going to be solved by them understanding technology better, right? Right. Um, There are a hundred ways you could create a better database or technology stack for the rand or the dollar that have nothing to do with blockchain. The blockchain kind of becomes just a a completely redundant piece of technology when applied to a CBDC. Now, going back to stablecoins, we don't see a stablecoin as competition to the fiat currency that it's pegged to. In fact, it relies on the the fiat currency. The stablecoin only has value because the thing that it represents has value. So my project Zop, we love the RAND. The RAND is our reason for being. But if you take the RAND away, our project has no value anymore. So we don't see ourselves as competitors to the RAND. We see ourselves as complementing the RAND. Because now I can take RAND value into domains where it couldn't be before. All of these DeFi protocols that Stephen and I have written about are not compatible with the RAND in your bank account, but they are compatible with the RAND stablecoin. So I can make the RAND do backflips now on the internet where it couldn't before. So sorry, that was extremely long-winded. <laughs> so, um, so, so I mean, I think the, the, the key point around something like this is that uh, th- that the, the world is not clear yet. This, this world that's busy being created is going to go in a thousand or million different directions. Uh, and, and there will be great innovation here that, that will be good for the world. There, yeah. will, there will be some backward innovation, which is exactly what you're talking about now. So, so I mean, as you say, adding reserve banks to, to the blockchain side of this is actually doubling up the bad. It's, not, it's actually no good now. I think there's a way it could be done where it, it could introduce new efficiencies. I, it, just, it would require a relinquishing of control that de facto you know, regulatory bodies never going to do. No. Their job is to regulate. Yeah. 
Um, so, so I think we could have a digital RAND that was fully distributed. We'd do a better job than the RAND currently does. I'm not a fan of central banks. I just don't think that central banks should be using blockchain technology. Okay. So, so I, I, I just wanted to, you said something which sparked a slight digression, which I just wanted to jump on. You said better for the rest of us. Um, I wanted to talk about something that the banks do, which is very, very bad, which does not exist in DeFi, which is not good for people. And it is so built into the DNA of financial institutions, we never even question it. If you go to the bank with 200 rand and you open a, want to open a bank account versus if you go to the bank with 200 million rand, you get treated differently. The person with the 200 million rand gets the phone calls returned and gets taken out for dinner and goes to Alabama to pay golf. Their money that they put in, each individual rand that they put in, is considered to be worth more than the poor person off the street who has just gathered together 200 rand to open a checking account. It is not a fair sex system. The bank rates its customers by the amount of profit that they bring a bank. We don't even question this. This does not exist at all in DeFi. It's a completely uh, flat system. Every crypto token, every Bitcoin, every Ethereum or any of the other ones are all worth exactly the same. They don't care about the status of the person or the wealth of the person behind it. So it's those sort of democratic fairnesses which enter the politics of DeFi, which, which is why we think this is so important and so compelling as, as a social innovation. And I think that that's the, the, the danger that governments would see, is that a system like this, uh, by, by its nature, is democratic – uh, and and a, and a real natural threat to the tax taxes that they want to collect, governments want to collect, the control they want to exert, uh, the, the direction that they want their population to vote or not vote, uh, and, and the like. And so I can see that, uh, that, I mean, forget about the banking system, the, the broader banking system. Clearly, this is a major threat to them, their profits, et cetera. But, but, but at a government level, that, that that governments would be threatened by this unless governments barely exist. You know, I can you, know, you just think that, that, that a government that almost doesn't exist anymore would look at this and say, great. But but you can't imagine you know kind of a Donald Trump in his heyday saying this is great because it makes him less and less and less important. And that's the very last thing he wants to be is less important. The yeah. governments that aren't worried about it are the governments that aren't worried about tax evasion at the moment because they're good governments. And I don't want to mention countries because that becomes a dangerous discussion. But I've got friends in countries elsewhere in the world who don't even think about paying their taxes. They've got no problem with it because their health care is free, their education system is free, they, they see the value. And so for them, like, tax evasion isn't even something they – it's not even a notion in their economies. Everybody pays – of course you pay your tax. You know, life is good, yeah. And I think what's interesting is philosophically when you look at people having more control over their finances – those countries aren't worried about it because their people are going to continue to pay their tax regardless. You know, they've, they've got economies where, where that equation works. What I like is the idea of authorities being or, – Bad or authorities. Being, you, know, you kind of have to compel us to pay our taxes yeah. because we now have the option, right? And the best way for you to compel a citizen to pay tax is give them something in return for it. Yeah. Do your job. You know, if government services are firing on all cylinders, nobody has a problem paying tax. All of a sudden, tax evasion ceases to be a problem. Now, obviously, that's massively complicated, especially in a country like South Africa. But to add what Stephen's saying, you, you, you've got a technology that we refer to it as permissionless. I don't have to ask for permission to open a Bitcoin wallet. I install an app on my phone. If I don't have airtime, I send a USSD code to a number even, and I have a Bitcoin account. Take seconds. Didn't have to fill out any paperwork. Didn't have to ask permission. And now I can transact on the internet and I can receive money from somebody in Japan, etc. 
So that, that inclusionary kind of aspect of it is baked in. The other thing, it is a censorship proof, right? So if I decide that I want to fund a journalist who's doing a really dangerous investigative job about a politician, nobody can stop that payment from happening, right? So you might be able to trace it and find out that it happened, um, but you cannot censor that payment, so that's another important aspect of it. But with all of that good also comes the ability for me, if I really know what I'm doing, to potentially hide stores of value away from the government and not pay my taxes. So give me a reason to and then, and then let's talk about that. But I don't think fighting the technology is the, the right no. angle. It, it never has been. Yeah. And, and so I think we, we need to wrap it up there. Uh, um, an, another enthralling episode. I'm looking at my producers and they're freaking out because we're running out of time on, on these. So, so I mean, ju- just to remind our, our listeners, the book's called Beyond Bitcoin um, and, it, and it's a mouth for me every time. So decentralized <laughs> finance and the, and, and the end of banks. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Simon and Stephen. I really appreciate your time. Looking forward to the next one. Thanks Thank for having you, Thank you for listening to Honest Money. If you have any questions, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter. My handle is at Warren Ingram. Don't forget to subscribe. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Chat soon.